This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 4th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. As the Obamacare lawsuit known as King v. Burwell goes to the Supreme Court, I sat down with one of the godfathers of the case, Jonathan Adler, to talk about what people need to know ahead of the oral argument scheduled for March 4th. The most important thing to get out is that this is this case is not a much of a constitutional matter at all. Right. It's 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 a statutory case. It's a case that's about executive power. It's a case that's about um, how you read a statute. It's a case that's about whether or not if Congress passes a law that, in retrospect, it decides was not written the way Congress or the administration would have liked, can the administration just rewrite it uh, and in order to serve the administration's policy preferences? And in this particular case, the law was quite conscious, a, an imperfect unfinished law was quite consciously enacted. And whether or not that licenses the executive branch to fill in the gaps to their liking. All right. Well, let's start from the beginning. Sure. So this case is really uh, deals with the Affordable Care Act, which uh, delegated to states the authority to decide whether or not to create a state-run exchange. And if they did not, the federal government would create an exchange for them. So. Uh, what difference does that make? Well, if one reads the statute, uh, one of the differences it makes is that tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies for the purchase of qualifying health insurance is available in exchanges that are established by a state, but there's no provision of the law that makes such tax credits or cost-sharing subsidies available in exchanges that are established by the federal government. This is a tool that Congress has used before in various contexts, saying to states, you get goodies if you do what we'd like you to do. In this case, it it doesn't seem that Congress put a lot of thought into whether states might say no, and if so, what would happen? And as it turned out, over 30 states did say no. And so in a majority of states, whether or not um, a the Supreme Court upholds the IRS's rule will determine whether or not these tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies uh, will be authorized. Now, it's not just about subsidies. It's also about triggering penalties. Correct. So the way the law is written is that eligibility for tax credits uh, triggers enforcement of what's called the employer mandate. Uh, That is, employers that fail to offer qualifying health insurance to their employees can be subject to significant penalties. And the trigger for those penalties is occurs when uh, a employee, uh, an employee of one of those companies, is eligible for tax credits, and then in addition, eligibility for tax credits exposes more individuals to the penalties that enforce what we call the individual mandate, the the individual requirement uh, to have health insurance. That tax, as the Supreme Court characterized it, is um, triggered by uh, insurance being affordable in terms of -of out-of-pocket costs. And so eligibility for a tax credit makes the insurance more affordable, means individuals have less choice whether or not to purchase insurance or not. All right. So what what are the questions before the court? So the question before the court is a simple question of statutory interpretation. Does the statute authorize the Internal Revenue Service to disperse tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies in states that did not create their own exchanges. Uh, The statute says tax credits are available 
through exchanges established by the state. The IRS says those tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies are available in exchanges established by the state or established by the federal government. And so whether or not that decision is allowable under the statute is the question before the court. How are they likely to uh, go ahead with this? Well, I mean, if this were if this were a normal non-political case, it would be easy. That is, we see the court all the time hold Congress to the strict language of the statute. Uh, just several weeks ago, we saw a case involving uh, whistleblowers at at the uh, TSA, and the court seven to two read the text very um, very narrowly parsed the words individually uh, and rejected the government's interpretation. We've seen similar recent decisions involving the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, the problem here is that this is about the Affordable Care Act. And so there are there's immense political implications to the court's decision. And that certainly affected the public debate. And it could affect uh, the way the justices view the case, especially given reports suggesting that several million people around the country who get tax credits now could lose those tax credits uh, if the court rejects the IRS rule. So that's a long way of saying is that if the court treated this like any other case, the plaintiffs would prevail. But this isn't any other case. And so there's more uncertainty about what the court might do. This goes to the Supreme Court after courts around the country have been effectively divided on yes. uh, what this law actually authorizes and what it doesn't authorize. What were the arguments that were believed by those other courts around the country? Sure. Well, so um, there were a total of five decisions in lower courts on this question, three district court opinions, two appellate opinions. Uh, the district court opinions went two to one in favor of the government. The appellate court opinions split. Um, the courts that rejected the government's position said the text is rather clear. Um, it, tax credits only exist where they are authorized. They are authorized in exchanges established by the state. Established by the state means established by the state. And the statute actually defines state to be one of the 50 states or the District of Columbia. Uh, the other um, district courts I think one of them uh, held the statute clearly supported the federal government. One of them was a bit more ambiguous. Uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, which ruled for the government uh, and is the case that is, is on certiorari to the court now, uh, held – two of the ju judges on that court held the statute was sufficiently ambiguous that the IRS's rule was a permissible interpretation. So the court didn't say the statute requires this result but says – we're not totally sure what the statute means, so we'll uphold what the agency did. One judge on the on that court thought the statute uh, su directly supported the government's position. And what's interesting is that some of the things the Fourth Circuit pointed to as evidence of ambiguity uh, involved really curious readings of statutory provisions. So there's one provision in the law that is labeled as a requirement, and that says that exchanges must be governmental entities uh, or nonprofits. Um, and it specifically says an exchange under 1311 must be uh, established by the state or, or be a nonprofit. And um, uh, the Fourth Circuit said, well, we'll read this as a definition. And if it's a definition, then maybe there's ambiguity about whether a federal exchange is, by operation of law, a state exchange or an exchange established by the state. Um, 
were that provision of the law not labeled as a requirement, did it not operate as a requirement, that might be an interesting ambiguity. The problem is if one actually looks at the whole law, its structure, the context of the provisions, it's really hard uh, to see that as as an ambiguity. The, the problem we often face in this sort of case is that courts sometimes confuse complexity for ambiguity. And um, when courts do that, they really give governmental agencies um, a, a trump card because, as we know, regulatory statutes typically are incredibly complex, uh, particularly when they are as poorly written as the Affordable Care Act is. And if complexity means ambiguity, well, then the government's always going to win. And, and that's really not the way courts are supposed to go about doing their job. So two questions related to this idea of, of uh, deference to complexity, in a sense. One is the idea of Chevron deference, and the other is void for vagueness. Right. So um, the the Chevron deference is this idea that um, Congress often leaves ambiguous or incomplete portions of statutes, and that when Congress does so, it is often reasonable to believe that Congress has delegated the authority to fill those gaps to the implementing agency, and that and part of the reason agencies implement statutes is, is Congress wants to let them fill in the details. And so Chevron says that when there is such an ambiguity in a statute and, and there is reason to believe Congress delegated such authority that then the agency should be allowed to adopt any permissible interpretation of the relevant language. Um, but ambiguity, again, doesn't just mean complexity. It doesn't just mean it takes work to figure out the semantic meaning of the text. Ambiguity means there is uh, language that is truly susceptible to multiple readings, uh, language that um, perhaps suggests a range of, of options, um, say perhaps a statute that talks about how um, certain uh, measures must be reasonable. Well, courts will often say, well, reasonable is a word that has sufficient breadth that an agency in implementing that statute can give meaning to the word reasonable, can construe it in a particular way. Um, in this statute, there are areas where there, is, there are areas where the statute is somewhat ambiguous. Um, the phrase established by the state is not ambiguous. The definition of state is not ambiguous. Uh, the fact that um, the phrase established by the state, when you look at other how it's used in other portions of the statute, makes clear that it's not an ambiguous phrase. I mean, when you look at the statute as a whole, this is not the sort of statute that we would think of as, as being um, ambiguous. In terms of void for vagueness, I, I don't think that's really implicated here um, because it's not that the statute is is vague in the sense that it doesn't let uh, individuals or regulated parties know what's to be expected of them. Uh, it's just complicated. Uh, and um, uh, now there is an argument that some states are making in support of the government, which is a similar sort of argument that insofar as the statute imposes costs on states that don't comply or don't cooperate, that Congress has to be extra clear. Um, my view is the statute is clear. If states weren't on notice of the consequences of not creating an exchange, it's because they relied upon guidances. They relied upon uh, the say-so of the IRS rather than the, than the text of the statute. And we know that state officials often do that. Um, 
But their argument, which is one that as a general matter often has force, is that Congress really shouldn't and the federal government shouldn't play a game of gotcha with the states. Um, I think it's a serious argument. I don't think um, it should have as much force in this case as it might in some other cases. But if that were to uh, influence the court, uh, it would um, – I, the federal government would not consider that a complete win because it, while that might be an argument for supporting the federal government's position here, it would really strengthen the hand of states um, that chafe under federal requirements under many other statutes. And it's why this argument is being raised by uh, amici supporting the federal government, but isn't really in the federal government's brief because the federal government is afraid of that of winning on those sorts of grounds. They're afraid of winning on the grounds that if they're not extra super explicit about whatever conditions they're imposing on a state, they can't impose them because that would have implications for conditions on waivers under No Left Child Behind, conditions placed on state implementation plans under the Clean Air Act, and so on. And, and that's something the federal government is certainly concerned about. So because the federal government routinely delegates uh, filling in the details of uh, its own statutes to regulatory agencies to determine what is reasonable, to construe various words to mean this and not that, uh, if they win on those grounds, that would then call into question a whole host of, of statutes that do just that? Well, it would call into, it would certainly uh, call into question the way those statutes have been implemented and enforced. Uh, I, I think the most likely way the argument gets deployed is not to strike down statutes so much as to say that agencies are more constrained in the way they interpret those statutes. And what we've seen under some of these statutes is federal agencies coming up with conditions that are not in the statute for the grant of waivers or the or the granting of funds. And um, a, a court opinion in this case suggesting that there's a problem with conditioning tax credits on state cooperation would necessarily um, raise questions about all sorts of conditions that various agencies have sought to, to impose on states, either as the receipt of federal funds or as a condition on uh, receiving waivers from other requirements. And again, if we look at things like No Child Left Behind implementation, um, it, it, would, it would create some serious questions there. The term established by the state has uh, confused at least some states. Uh, in, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, for example, uh, Governor Steve Bashir there uh, created an exchange and there was no legislative input whatsoever. So to what extent does the state merely refer to the executive and to what extent does it refer to a, a, a lawmaking body and the executive? Usually that sort of question is a function of state law. So if you look at another area where states are, are called upon to participate in the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, the Medicaid expansion, what is required to authorize the expansion of Medicaid uh, is different from state to state. And so, for example, in, in my state of Ohio, um, Medicaid was initially expanded um, through a special process that did not really involve the legislature, but that is provided for under Ohio law, whether or not it was a good policy idea for uh, Governor Kasich to seek to do that as a legal matter, Ohio fulfilled Ohio's legal requirements. I'm not entirely sure what Kentucky's rules are, but as a general matter, um, what, what matters is the state 
uh, complying with the requirements of the state constitution. Now, in the Affordable Care Act, there are some provisions relating to exchanges that clearly contemplate certain types of state action, and that is approval by the legislature or things of that nature, or um, in addition to the creation of an exchange, the adoption of certain sorts of rules about ins- uh, the issuance of health insurance and the type of health insurance that's issued, that really could only be adopted by the legislature. Um, and uh, insofar as that's part of what the law requires for states to truly establish an exchange, that is, they, they need to, to jump through all of those hoops. Uh, in fact, uh, what a lot of people tend to overlook is that the federal government is required to create a federal exchange not merely if the state fails to create an exchange, but also if the state fails to do other regulatory steps that states are called upon to do. Um, and that, I think, reinforces um, the idea that that Congress really wanted states to play a very active role in implementing the statute and had many reasons to give the states strong incentives. And what this case is in some respect about is if over 30 states didn't do didn't respond to those incentives, can the federal government ignore those parts of the statute and go its own way? So you said if this were a simple case of a non-controversial law that you would get something like uh, 7-2. And in this case, it's, it's far more complex, certainly. But let's talk about what the court might say if they do go your way, sure. which is how they would remedy the situation and what might they say? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, in terms of what they might say, I think I think what we'll see in the opinions, at least in part, is a split that we've often seen on the court between what we might characterize as textualist approaches to statutes and purposivist. Textualist interpretation we usually associate with Justice Scalia, purposivist uh, we often associate with Justice Breyer. Uh, Justice Stevens was a big a purposivist. The idea being that the text isn't really the end-all, be-all. It's an indication of what Congress was really trying to do, and what Congress was really trying to do is what matters. And we've seen recent decisions in recent years where the court has split, sometimes 5-4, along those sorts of lines. There was an Environmental Protection Agency case uh, last term where the majority of the court said numerical emission thresholds mean what they say. When Congress uses a number, we know what a number is. That's not ambiguous. And Justice Breyer, in dissent, said, well, the number was just about dividing big emitters from small emitters. And if we're talking about a different pollutant where a different threshold would make sense, it's consistent with congressional intent to allow the agency to come up with new numbers. We could certainly see that kind of split. If um, uh, we see that sort of split and a majority of the court sides with the plaintiffs and upholds what I think is the the clear meaning of the text, then the question is whether or not that opinion uh, is effective immediately, uh, whether or not the federal government is given some time to try and uh, come up with some sort of fix. And, you know, the Administrative Procedure Act instructs courts to set aside a regulation that is unlawful. Um, and so strict adherence to that would mean that the court rules for the plaintiffs. The mandate issues a few weeks later. That mandate would set aside the regulation. It's gone. Um, and given that um, tax credits are supposed to be calculated on a month-to-month basis, it would mean that 
by the end of the summer, tax credits would not be available in federal exchanges. Now, while that's kind of the strict way we would think of, of applying the Administrative Procedure Act, there is some precedent for uh, courts giving agencies some time to uh, smooth out the edges and smooth the transition from what it had been doing to what would be more lawful. Uh, there also is some precedent for courts exercising equitable authority or equ equitable um, discretion to uh, ameliorate some of the effects of a decision on, say, innocent parties that may have relied to their detriment on the lawfulness of the government action. So it's certainly possible that the court could say something that might say, allow subsidies to, and tax credits to, to continue for the end of the tax year under the belief that um, you know, while the IRS should have known, it, what it was doing was, was not lawful and there's reason to believe that the IRS knew that. Um, the average person that went, that, that went to healthcare.gov and bought a health insurance plan um, that was more expensive because of the requirements of the Affordable Care Act, but then also got tax credits because of the Affordable Care Act really had no way of knowing about the legal uh, jeopardy of of the of the the tax credits and and so on and so it's certainly conceivable the court might allow some sort of uh, some sort of of period transition period um, and you know we'll have to see if the court does that I mean Congress could certainly, fix this relatively quickly. Uh, Congress could itself create a transition period. Congress could itself use this as a reason to create some alternative, uh, whether of the sorts of alternatives that, that Cato's Michael Cannon has talked about or the sorts of alternatives that have been talked about by people at other uh, think tanks and organizations. There, there's, there are a range of alternatives to the Affordable Care Act model that um, might be more politically appealing in a world in which Congress has to do something. Um, you know, that is the inertia of, of the status quo will have been disrupted. And so that's certainly a possibility. And, and I think the court will be aware of that possibility, that, that you know, this isn't just the court stepping in and saying, you know, the law is gone. It's the court saying the law says X. Congress now has an opportunity to change that if Congress doesn't like it. Jonathan Adler is a professor of law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. You can read more on the Affordable Care Act and its problems at our website, cato.org.